1: How does anyone really know if a disturbing psychic state is a genuine medical abnormality or not merely one of life's natural ups and downs? How do we recognize whether we or someone we care about is suffering from a pathological state of mind rather than ordinary fluctuations in mental acuity and of high and low spirits? What is mental illness exactly? Oncologists can touch rubbery tumors, pulmonologists can peer through a microscope at strings of pneumonia bacteria, and cardiologists have little trouble identifying the yellowish plaques of artery-clotting cholesterol. Psychiatry, on the other hand, has struggled harder than any other medical specialty to provide tangible evidence that the maladies under its charge even exist. As a result, psychiatry has always been susceptible to ideas that are outlandish or downright bizarre. When people are desperate, they are willing to listen to any explanation and source of hope.
0: Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman, M.D., is the Lawrence C. Kolb Professor and Chairman of Psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and Director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He also holds the Lieber Chair for Schizophrenia Research in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia and serves as Psychiatrist-in-Chief at New York Presbyterian Hospital Columbia University Medical Center. He was the President of the American Psychiatric Association. His new book is Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lieberman. My pleasure to be here. This is such a fabulous book. It turns the history of science into a story, and I think that's so important because at the very beginning of our understanding of mental illness, we really didn't even know how to name it. So, talk about the first man to really begin to treat mental illness was a man named Mesmer, (laughs) a name that should be familiar to us all.
1: Well, his name has found uh, his way into our vernacular, you know, to mesmerize or to hypnotize or to fascinate. You know, there's a quote that I use in the book, you know, to name it is to tame it. And initially, historically, mental illness has always been present in humankind, but it was thought to be something that was supernatural or an individual afflicted with demons or cursed by the gods or something of that that sort. As medical science progressed and, you know, began to define categories of what it called disease, both medical and otherwise, mental illness began to be defined as such and was described by what physicians observed in people, meaning their behavior and their manifest symptoms. And initially, it was pretty crudely defined. It was defined really in two, two terms. In fact, in the 1840 census, which is the first time that the United States attempted to quantify the frequency of mental illnesses in the population, they had two diagnoses, idiocy and insanity, idiocy has now, you know, been deconstructed into all manner of intellectual disabilities like fragile x syndrome, autism, prader willi syndrome, rett syndrome, and insanity has been uh, differentiated into the 265 diagnoses within the diagnostic the DSM, the diagnostic statistical manual
0: which is kind of the bible of psychiatry. That's an important piece of literature. Probably the most important piece of literature in maybe the history of science, and certainly in this history of commerce. <laughs> and you talk, tell us, give us a great uh, vision of that. But let let's ratchet back and and talk a little bit about Mr. Mesmer and his experiments because they get. Uh, his vision still lasts to a certain extent to this day.
1: Right. Well, Mesmer was a a physician in the 18th century, and he was really one of the most famous, prominent physicians of the time. And at the time, there really wasn't much scientific understanding of what caused illnesses of any sort. And he fashioned a theory which focused on individuals that suffered from what we now think of as neurological or psychiatric illnesses, which involved basically the blockage or obstruction of a kind of force, a elan vital or a magnetic force that flowed through the body. It sounds kind of mystical or, or philosophical. And he had a technique which amounted to an elaborate form of hypnotism uh, by which he would treat individuals and had some degree of success. But what this basically shows is the power of suggestion and in some cases of of hypnotism. But he was really the first person that can be considered a psychiatrist, and that was before psychiatry existed as a discipline, and his influence carried forward in a variety of ways. We see it with the most famous nineteenth century neurologist of the time, Jean Marie Charcot, who practiced a similar kind of technique that Mesmer did a century earlier, and Charcot's sort of greatest disciple was Sigmund Freud. So he took Mesmer's idea and elaborated in it into what has become the most famous and compelling theory of the mind and behavior that has existed in
0: human history. Freud is such a fascinating figure in this book and I think you do a great job of telling the stories of each of these characters and using um creating the a series of characters within the history of psychiatry. To You give us their story arcs, and you use their individual stories as marker in the bigger story arc of psychiatry, so talk about creating the individual story arcs and then architecting them into the story arc of the character of psychiatry itself
1: right well, psychiatry as a discipline really began in the early part of the nineteenth century, but it had antecedents such as mesmer such as um, going back to religious holy men who tried to exercise the demons of people who were afflicted with mental illnesses. But uh, the problem was is that as medical science progressed and they began to apply scientific methodology, which in the 19th century, the coin of the realm was anatomic pathology. So doctors would get to cadavers and they would examine the organs of a particular disease area, heart, lungs, kidneys, stomach, brain and look for anomalies that they could infer were associated with the illness of the person when they were alive. And when this was done, there was a lot of progress being made identifying tumors and vascular anomalies and infectious agents and uh, trauma, effects of trauma. But when it came to mental illness, there was nothing. The individuals examining the brain who were neurologists and psychiatrists at the time could not find the so-called footprints of mental illness. At the time, a psychiatrist, Alois Alzheimer, identified Alzheimer's disease from the plaques and tangles and atrophy, which got named Alzheimer's disease after him, but they couldn't find anything for what we now call schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety disorders. So psychiatry kind of came up empty-handed. So in this context, we see individuals who were embedded in this process that have become kind of the seminal figures. Included in these was the first individual individual. And it's interesting because these, uh, at the time, the center of scientific medicine was really in the Germanic-speaking countries. But the first person that really kind of realized that this approach, anatomic pathology, was not going to lead anywhere was Emil Kreplin. So he was a German psychiatrist that was working. And as all psychiatrists did in the late 19th century, if you were a major psychiatrist, that meant that you were the head of a mental asylum meaning you were basically the superintendent of a large institution that housed uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals with mental illness. Um, and these were usually outside of cities in some rural area, and they became kind of self-contained little cities or, or villages. Interestingly, psychiatrists obtained the name as a result of this, alienists, because they presided over a community that was alien to society. But Kreplin said that you know the idea of pursuing these um, pathologic bases of mental illness had been fruitless. And so he reverted in a very rigorous, systematic way to classifying the uh, illnesses that people were afflicted with by their symptoms and their history. In other words, what symptoms did they exhibit and what happened to them over the successive years of their lives? Because many of these people spent years, if not decades, of the rest of their lives in these institutions. And by dint of this careful observation, he was the first person to be able to systematically divide insanity into specific subtypes. He called schizophrenia at the time, dementia precox. He called about what we now call bipolar manic depressive illness, and he called what we now call depression this is melancholia. Now, the next person that really forms the inflection point was Freud,
0: because He took an opposite approach. What Kreplin was doing was very scientific. He measured what you could measure.
1: Yes. Freud took a different approach. (laughs) That's right. And the character of Freud in this history represents the other side of the spectrum. So Mesmer began as a psychodynamicist with his uh, Elan Vital magnetic forces, Mm -hmm. some dynamic, mystical, metaphysical process that was producing these ailments in people. But then in the 19th century, there was this emphasis on anatomic pathology, so the biologic orientation predominated. But as Kreplin concluded, that was unsuccessful and enter Freud. So Freud, by dint of the sheer powers of his intellect, invented a theory of the mind and how it developed and how it caused people to behave. But in doing so, he eschewed the biologic emphasis on anatomy pathology and reverted back to what Mesra was doing, which was making inferences about metaphysical mechanisms and forces within the mind that were mediating
0: people's behavior. Well... It- Freud himself, he started out, he wanted to be a scientist, and he started out with some rigor. But you do a great job of painting the early days of his uh career, he started out with just this tiny meeting of with four friends. It was like a a, a book club (laughs) devoted to the works of Sigmund Freud. So talk about researching and creating the atmosphere of this tiny club in Vienna where these guys would meet and talk about Freud's theory and about why Freud was right and Freud, Freud, Freud. Right. Well,
1: it, it's funny uh, how when you sort of visit the um, sites where some of the most seminal moments in history took place, how modest and uh, <laughs> they seem to you now. And Freud's, the start of psychoanalytic theory and Freud's influence on psychiatry you know, began in similar circumstances. So Freud was trained actually as a neurologist. So, you know, psychiatry and neurology did split uh, in the mid-19th century with neurologists staying in hospitals and in cities treating people with neurological ailments or at least diagnosing them. They couldn't do very much to treat them. And psychiatrists being out presiding over these mental asylums as, as alienists. Um, Freud was a neurologist, so he worked in offices and he trained under Charcot and then uh, Joseph Breuer, another neurologist. What he did was just by observing them and, and he adopted the Mesmerian technique and then the technique of Charcot of basically hypnotizing people. But after this and after working with Breuer, he formulated his theory and then from the theory what was called the talking cure And uh, that's what we now know as psycholombic theory. The mind has components that id, ego, superego. It evolves over the course of a person's life from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. It invokes a variety of different mechanisms to manage threatening or conflicting emotions. And these were called defense mechanisms. He formulated the concept of the unconscious which was a brilliant conception prior to Freud the notion among people and educated or not was that you you knew everything that was was happening to you you were aware of all of your Mental activity, Freud formulated unconscious. You know, you're going to be in speaking. I think at some point with Dr. Michael Zaniga, a famous cognitive neuroscientist, Freud, with his unconscious, anticipated cognitive neuroscience, which has now demonstrated how there are all these different processes with implicit memory that occur outside of conscious awareness. So Freud came up with this really you know, brilliant theory, but it was on the other extreme from the biologists. It was back in the psychodynamic, you know, metaphysical camp. And at the time, given the intellectual vacuum that existed with psychiatry, scientifically speaking, this theory was so compelling that it captured people's attention. So when he began writing about it, individuals in the community began to admire him and flock to him. So first, it was a small number of colleagues that were impressed with his formulation and began to meet with him in what was called the the Wednesday night club. And they would meet in his house, and they would have a very you know, well-structured kind of discussion that uh, followed the same schedule and format uh, every week. Um, but gradually this began to expand. And that's when you run into, I think, the first mistake that Freud made, which is to impose his need for sort of obsessive order and
0: fidelity to his method on all of his disciples. He be- he helped... Uh what he eventually became called uh, psychoanalysis become in essence the id <laughs> of of our understanding of mental uh, illness in that it was just this completely uncontrollable force that, or it was controlled by adherence to his belief, his theories, and he st- started turning what had started out to be a science based on some fact gathering into something much more akin to a religion. Exactly. Well, I mean, it
1: started out as a theory, mm-hmm. um, and all you know, scientific uh, progress is based on initial sort of theoretical formulation or hypothesis. Uh, Freud came up with this elaborate theory, uh, psychoanalytic theory, which was a brilliant conception. I mean, this was akin to Einstein with the theory of relativity, or, or you know, Copernicus or Galileo with you know, heliocentrism. It was really just earth-shaking. But the problem is is that uh, in science, when one has a theory, you then subject it to verification through e- in, uh, experiments and determining whether the theory is supported or not or whether it's disproved. Um, Freud, because of his rigid need for order and adherence to uh, his beliefs and his methods, would not allow his disciples to deviate, and he would not allow the theory to be submitted to any type of empirical verification. And that was, I think, the first mistake that was made because then in his acolytes who really had subscribed to his theory, it became virtually a religion.
0: For all that Freud uh, had created this kind of religion of his theory, he was also, he was a brilliant writer. And I think that as time goes by, he may be seen as much of a literary figure as he is as a scientific figure, and he told great stories. And one of his most enduring stories uh, was the story of Dora, which still lives with us today. That It's often referred to.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, you can be a brilliant scientist, but if you can't communicate your ideas, then uh, you're not going to gain the traction and the visibility. Uh, In Freud's case, he was a brilliant orator, spellbinding orator, and also writer, and he was a prolific writer. When Freud only visited the United States once, he came to the United States in 1908 at the invitation of York University. And at the time, he had a, a large following in Europe, but there wasn't much of a following in the United States. You know, we didn't have virtual communication like today. And uh, he came and uh, gave a series of lectures, and many of the leading figures in psychiatric neurologic medicine and psychology um, uh, came to hear him. And inclu- even even people who are sort of outside of it, like the political activist uh, Reva, uh, Emma Goldman came, along with William James and a number of other people. And Uniformly, each of them, all of them, were just completely bowled over. They were just fascinated with Freud. And uh, the leading American neurologist at the time, who was from Harvard, invited Freud to come back to his home afterwards to spend a couple of days. And uh, afterwards, this was a a, a, a very prominent uh, um, establishment-type neurologist from Harvard, and after Freud left, you know, he endorsed all of what he said and actually sanctioned the establishment of the first sort of American psychoanalytic association in the United States.
0: Now, one thing about Freud was, too, that psychiatry had been kind of lost. Uh, the, the Our understanding of the mind had been lost and separated from the rest of medicine, which had been following an easier path, to be sure, un- dissecting the body and finding tumors and hearts and all that stuff. But Freud provided this – he was a leader. I mean, he was somebody who can look up and say, yes, we can follow this guy. And that proved – he led them out, as you write, into the desert, intellectual desert for more than half a century.
1: Right. Well, it's it's interesting how history evolves. Freud came up with this brilliant theory, but his personality sort of relegated it to being accepted sort of a, a whole cloth on faith and thus becoming dogma. And then the other thing was that that by itself wouldn't necessarily have caused uh, its influence to be as, as hegemonic as it was and constraining as it was. What happened was that as his theory was gaining influence, acquiring sort of uh, uh, followers, the political events of World War I then World War II uh, began to unfold. And the individuals that were considered to be the uh, sort of leaders and the pioneers and the, the sort of or, uh, the, uh, the orthodoxy of, of psychoanalytic theory, the, the keepers of the knowledge were this coterie of followers that Freud had accumulated from European countries, largely. And by then it included Jung and included Maslow and included uh, um, you know all of the sort of leading people in psychiatry and psychology of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. But because of the rise of Hitler and Nazism and persecution of the Jews and other minority groups, there was this migration that was forced And many of um, the inner circle of Freud were were individuals of Jewish uh, religion. And so they fled, many coming to the United States. And when they came to the United States, they were regarded as as really kind of uh, nobility. And they were installed in uh, given positions of respect in various academic institutions and in the medical community. And they then systematically kind of colonized America and began to uh, sort of accumulate influence by occupying all of the major positions of influence in American psychiatric medicine.
0: Now, American psychiatric medicine was in a peculiar state too because most of the people who were, I guess, psychiatrists were people who were relegated alienists. They were relegated to running these asylums filled with unsavory people in conditions that were unsavory, and they were out in the countryside. So we have a group of urbane, urban, upscale people treating the wealthy and the general, what you call the walking well, what a great term that is. And on the other hand, we have these people who are in charge of the madhouses, the snake pits, right? Yeah. So American
1: psychiatry was really in the backwaters of medicine, scientifically speaking. And I, you know, have a brief section describing that. You know, the leading figure in in American psychiatry and historically, till really the mid twentieth century, was Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was a physician, one of the few physicians to be a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was a leading physician, not a psychiatrist, but a leading physician, and who became very concerned with the welfare of individuals with mental illness. And he established the Pennsylvania Hospital as an institution to treat them, not just in a humane way, but in a scientifically advanced way, whatever that meant in the 18th century. And he used techniques now that, you know, seem... You know, preposterous or cruel. He invented this kind of restraining chair where somebody who was floridly psychotic would be put into this chair, which you know, basically bound them and kept them immobile. He used a spinning chair where individuals were strapped into a chair that was able to be uh, rotated until they were so dizzy that they either passed out or vomited. He thought purging was a way his theory of mental illness had to do with humors and humors you know, being out of balance. So he would administer these concoctions that he formulated, which were basically uh, very potent laxatives. So you can imagine this hospital is not a very sanitary or pleasant place to live in with you know, people constantly being given laxatives. But there was really... His, his thunderbolts. <laughs> exactly. You know, Russia's thunderbolts. Um, <laughs> they were you know, sort of a quasi-scientific form of snake oil. But you know, there, nobody really came forward as an intellectual leader in America. And, and then Freud arrived, or Freud's theory arrived. And that, again, sort of filled a vacuum and began to acquire influence. And then when the wave of psychoanalytic uh, refugees came to the United States and were installed in positions of power, that helped to kind of solidify psychoanalytic theory's influence on American psychiatry.
0: The problem with, Ameri- with psychoanalytic theory, though... It- wasn't a lot of good with helping people who were truly deeply, disturbingly mentally ill was it
1: right? Well, that was the second mistake. I mean, Freud, as I mentioned, uh, I mean, there's un- n- no question Freud was a towering figure in history of civilization and in medicine as well, and the most famous psychiatrist uh, ever and He's a true hero uh, in that respect, but he's also, as I put it, a calamitous rogue because the consequences of his theory and the way he promulgated it led to this you know, more than half century detour into the scientific wilderness. And it, it led American psychiatry into expanding the application of his psychoanalytic theory beyond its utility. So, this theory is a brilliant theory of trying to understand the uh, uh, structure and mechanisms of the mind and how the mind develops over the course of an individual's lifetime and how it relates to human behavior. But it does not explain mental illness per se. It does not explain schizophrenia, it does not explain bipolar disorder, it does not explain major depression, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. But uh somewhat hubristically, his most ardent followers, the so-called Neo-Freudians in this country, began to extend it to apply. And as a result, they came up with, with preposterous formulations. For example, one of his uh, disciples who was a very prominent American psychiatrist after she came to the U.S., Frieda Fromm-Reichmann, who we will know is a psychiatrist and never promised you a rose garden developed the concept of the schizophrenogenic mother. So it was the mother's uh, behavior that caused an individual to grow up and become schizophrenic. Autism, when autism was defined, the term refrigerator mother was coined to define why a child was autistic. The idea of you being depressed and suicidal or self-destructive was really that you had this anger towards your parents that you couldn't express and was being turned inward on yourself. Concepts of you know, penis envy and uh, um, you know, the elaborate sort of manifestations of the Oedipal complex and so forth were other formulations that were overextended. So this was really, the, I think,
0: the, the second critical mistake that occurred with psychoanalytic theory. Well, this gets down to the importance of words and the importance of definitions because you ask at the beginning of this book, what is mental illness? And understanding just what that is, it seems obvious to us now, not so obvious then. And so drawing those lines was really important to uh, both the practice of psychiatry and also to the world, uh, to humans understanding who we were and how we worked.
1: The, the concept of mental illness is, is, is so uh, misunderstood, I think, you know, among the, the general public and the population and the media and the mm-hmm. government. On one hand, you have people saying, uh, well, everybody's a little crazy and everybody really needs psychiatry or some type of help in that way.
0: That's the fallout of Freud in his idea of neurosis. That's right. And,
1: and, you know, some of his, again, neo-Freudian followers promulgated this. Um, the, the probably, you know, if, if the Kennedys are kind of the uh, American equivalent of a royal family, um, the uh, psychiatric equivalent of a royal family are the, were the Meningers. Carl, Will, Walter Menninger were, were a family that started the Menninger Clinic, which was kind of the um, lead, like the Mayo Clinic for, for mental illness Will Menninger was the first uh, four-star general in the Army who was a psychiatrist. You know, the, the Army military didn't, you know, didn't count in psychiatry <laughs> until they were forced to in World War II because of all of the uh, what we now call PTSD that was occurring. But his brother, Walter, published a book which basically said everybody is a little crazy, in essence, and was saying everybody should undergo psychoanalysis. So, But that's not true. And a distinction that I try and make in the book is that Um, Everybody, of course, has problems in living. Everybody can be considered at some time or other to maybe be among the worried well, some more, some less. But mental illnesses are defined and outside of the variation, the range of variation of human behavior and human experience. And these are relatively consistent syndromes of certain mental and behavioral symptoms and signs that are the result of disturbances in specific parts of the brain that occur from various possible causes. Biologic causes, on one hand, that largely derive from genetics, from genes. Environmental causes that may occur as the result of um, stress, drug intoxication, nutritional deficiencies... Or environmental exposures, and then the third uh, has to do with just um, the possibility of psychological factors inducing persisting biologic changes in the brain that cause symptoms. And the exemplar of that, which
0: is, I think, you know, a
1: prototype of mental illness, is PTSD.
0: This book is called Shrink's, <laughs> and so you give us a little a pocket history of the word head shrinker, and and, and I think what's interesting too. Is the cultural import that that carried through the 1970s and 80s? I mean, this stuff is recent history. So it's we look back now. We live in an age where you can see MRIs. We can understand. We can, we have a little more physical understanding a biochemical understanding of what's happening in their brain. Back then, it, that wasn't the case. And now it's, this is pretty recent history. That's right. But uh, actually, I, these these old
1: attitudes, which you know, derived back then, I think still persist to a considerable degree today. But it's interesting, Rick, because um, when I submitted my sort of proposal for this book, I had a much different name. And um, the name was a much more what I thought was poetic and sort of fitting name, um, something like uh, pariahs in the palace of medicine, or that's you know, a good name <laughs> given what you the, the thrust of the book. I, I that's not bad exactly. Or sojourn in the scientific wilderness. <laughs> um, and my editor said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh that's not going to work." He says, you, "You, you, are you writing a book for your colleagues? Or are you writing a book for the general uh, readers?" And I said, "No, I want to you know, reach the the general readers." And she so says, "Okay, well, I'm going to tell you what I f- we think." And so, you know, she basically f- passed it around in terms of ideas to um at a colleagues in, in the office, uh, publisher Little Brown, and came back to me and said, here's your title, Shrinks, The Untold Story of Medicine. And I said, well, isn't that a little demeaning? <laughs> demeaning, shmeaning, that's what people think of when they think of psychiatry.
0: Well, also, too, demeaning, but not to say fairly accurate <laughs> in that for a long time. I mean, at, now we understand but for a long time, uh, the practice was by people who were thinking about ids and super egos and all these weird sexual compli- complications that came out of Freud's own subconscious.
1: Right. The, the origins of the term, as well as its connotations, uh, are, not, uh, are not terribly sort of uh, elegant and, and <laughs> profound. Um, basically, the, as best we can determine, it emerged in the late 1940s in Hollywood, when a uh, studio executive was complaining about a temperamental actress and um, at the time Holly was making a lot of these uh, exotic adventure movies, you know, with exotic places where there were indigenous tribes that resulted to cannibalism and different practices and had witch doctors which would shrink the heads of their enemies. And so he said, you know, we need to send this actress you know, to a psychiatrist so she can have her ego shrunk. And then there was a reference that was made in Life magazine that was doing a profile on a famous uh, cowboy star at the time, Hopalong Cassidy. And he used the term in uh, a reference to his own career. He was saying that if anybody, given where I started out, if anybody would have said that I was going to achieve the level of fame and, uh, and success that I have, they would have needed to uh, have their head shrunk. And then H.L. Mencken responded to a letter to the editor in the Baltimore Sun with uh, the same kind of reference, and it then became uh, kind of a the jargon you know, of our
0: popular language. You yourself were a student at, right at the pivot point of, of the whole change as psychiatry and psychoanalysis was on the ropes. And when... Um, our own understanding of neuroscience and our own understanding of the biology of the brain began to shift. So I'd like you to talk about just being a student at that time. You 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 had doubts about psychoanalysis, even though you were brought up in a school. You went to a school where that was still the rigueur, Right. My
1: motive for writing the book mainly came from 30 years of doing research and treating patients with mental illness and becoming so frustrated with the uh, re- realization that many people who had different forms of mental illness were not getting treatment not because there wasn't treatment available that would be highly effective and safe for them but because of the lack of awareness the shame they felt if they you know uh, publicly sort of uh, uh, sought help or not knowing how to access help but as i got into you know formulating the idea for the book and uh, what form it would take um, what occurred to me kind of an epiphany was that um, there was an autobiographical element to it. Although I was telling the story of psychiatry and mental illness, you could pretty much say that most of what is the substantive progress that occurred in this discipline of medicine occurred in the last half of the 20th began It didn't begin to the last half of the 20th century. And I went to medical school in the early 1970s. And it was a point at which the hegemonic influence of psychoanalytic theory uh, was just beginning to give way. Up until then, you had to be an analyst to sort of rise to any position of prominence. There was this kind of pressure, subtle pressure, that was put on trainees in, in psychiatry to undergo analysis and kind of subscribe to the dogma. And this was just beginning to relax because of the fact that certain things had occurred which changed the way clinical psychiatry began to be practiced, and, and the first of these was psychopharmacology. Um, in the 1950s, by pure serendipity, pure luck, treatments were discovered for the first time in human history, just like you know when Fleming discovered penicillin and he had a treatment for infectious disease, that were effective against schizophrenia, uh, depression, bipolar disorder, and these happened by luck. They occurred over a decade-long period from the mid-'50s into the 60s, and as they sort of entered clinical practice, immediately it posed the question, well, if these drugs are effective in the way they are, how can all these theories that explained we tried to use to explain mental illness be, be accurate? And I was in medical school and just beginning my residency when, you know, the proverbial,
0: you know what, hit the fan. It's so fascinating to read about the discovery of these drugs because you help us as readers realize that up till that point, I mean, every other form of medicine, they had a treatment that you could give some kind of um medicine you could take some kind of operation you could perform that would work and cure the illness and there was never been that kind of clear cut defined cure in the world of mental illness and these uh the psychopharmacology really was just an eye opening revolution especially the way you write about it in that all of a sudden we realized these things do have a cure they're not just some mystical result of uh, something that happened to us in our nebulous past, maybe. Right. Well,
1: my, my father, uh, he used to have a saying, it's better to be lucky than to be smart. <laughs> And psychiatry was very, very lucky in these treatments being developed because not only did it provide a treatment for the first time in human history that could control symptoms. They, these weren't cures, but they were highly effective at, at controlling symptoms in the same way that if you have hypertension, you take anti-hypertension medications and that controls your blood pressure, or if you have diabetes, you take insulin or oral hypoglycemics and that controls your your blood glucose. And they also, at the same time, opened up a window into the biology that might be causing the illness. So uh, hearkening back to our earlier point in our discussion, we talked about this kind of oscillation that psychiatry had between the psychodynamic metaphysical to the biologic. We had now had a way with the medications to begin to make inferences, hypotheses about, well, if this drug is working this way in the brain, then the illness must be due to some disturbance in that, that system. So, it really opened up a new scientific pathway. And this was so So when I was in medical school and then a residency, it was like you were being pulled in two directions. On one hand, you had the training, which was uh, heavily oriented towards psychoanalytic theory and how to do psychoanalytic psychotherapy um, and understanding illnesses in that context. And then you had this emergence of a new science beginning with psychopharmacology, but then In the late 70s, uh, the first brain imaging device was developed, the CAT scan. And then in the 80s, the magnetic resonance imaging systems were developed, and the PET scans. So when imaging became uh, introduced into medical research, which allowed non-invasive ways to look at the brain structure and function in a very sophisticated, as opposed to a very crude way, as occurs with x-rays... This offered another window into trying to understand mental illness. And then you had genetics, which was just emerging also in the 1980s, molecular genetics. And by that time, kind of the tide had turned. And psychoanalysis, which is still historically and clinically an important subdiscipline within psychiatry, and has remained so, but it wasn't the dominant or the pervasive discipline there was new directions that were
0: evolving you write convincingly and well of the kind of the politics of science the the str- the power literally there were power struggles between the freudians and the anti-freudians and these all wrapped around came to a head around the ultimate uh, descendant of a man you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, Keplinger. He had written this little description of the symptoms somewhat 150 years ago, but that had kind of mutated and changed. And then there was another man who uh, had done a study in Chicago, was it? where he again looked at the symptoms and tried to categorize them and say if his symptom is if they show this symptom it's this kind of thing and again bring a little rigor to understanding the, the different kinds of disease and then we had the DSM. Which is this ultimately became. So tell us a little bit about where it got that statistic in the title, which is really odd. And the battle for the DSM three, you were there at the center of that, and that must have been a fascinating place to be for where you were in your career.
1: It was. It was. It was like um, you know being a, a witness to history. Uh, you know, if you were in you know, Spain during the Spanish Civil War, or you were in you know, France during the uh, French Revolution, or you know, in the United States it was it was really exciting and and as i said as i began to sort of think about how to formulate the book it occurred to me i wasn't just going to tell a history and incorporate some you know clinical case histories but i could also introduce an autobiographical dimension because um and you know this was just sheer coincidence that i was born when i was born but you know i sort of lived it what happened was is that there was this kind of uh, uh, i mean and these kinds of struggles for theoretical supremacy are not you know, that are not unique to psychiatry. Uh, they occur in all areas of medicine where people, there's a prevailing theory, and everything from diagnosis to treatment is sort of oriented along this, you know, a great example that I love is with peptic ulcer disease. You know, ulcers used to be thought to be due to some force that, or some problem that caused over secretion of gastric acid, which eroded the gastric mucosa, the lining. And, at one point, it was thought to be psychosomatic. You know, certain kind of temperaments produced this. and you were Also, you were supposed to stay away from certain kind of foods, which could be irritants and so forth. And then this Australian physician, you know, not in a very high-powered academic position, you know, produced this theory about it was caused by an infectious pathogen, H. pylori. And he ultimately proved it, got the Nobel Prize for it, but that completely kind of, uh, um, you know, upended all the prevailing theories, but he was derided for years when he was presenting his research Till finally uh, it was confirmed. But with um, psychiatric diagnosis, uh, Kreplin uh, established this first systematic delineation uh, of distinct illnesses based on signs and symptoms. But um, in the wake of psychoanalytic theory and the practices that that engendered, diagnosis became almost subjective opinion from people. The rigid, rigid kind of adherence to needing to have uh, the symptoms of an individual in the course that the illness followed in their life to find the diagnosis was lost, and it became more of a subjective description. It almost became like Felix Frankfurter's description of pornography. You know, I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. There, were, there was like an art form to, to kind of verbal poetry. Like you have... <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. There would be elaborate formulations, and and some analysts went so far to saying that um, there was no reason to have diagnoses per se because each case was individual, and you could not combine cases. You know, there was it's like it's like saying you know if you have um, you know heart disease or, or diabetes or asthma. Um, you, know, you can't say that somebody has this diagnosis because there's many, many different forms of heart disease and asthma. That was That's what was said about mental illnesses. And so these formulations became um, the way of describing. And, and even though you needed to have some kind of diagnosis to put in the chart or to submit to as an insurance company, um, those things were just kind of window dressing. They didn't hold any meaning. Um, so it was, you know, really this kind of diagnostic chaos that um, led to uh, a lot of dissatisfaction uh, in a variety of ways. Um, one way was that uh, this is one of the most unlikely places you think it would come from, was the military. So the military uh, has conducts a pre-induction physical uh, evaluation on everybody before they go in to make sure that they're, you know, fit. And included in that is a mental evaluation because they didn't want to take people who were you know, so-called mentally defective or ill. Um, and what they found is that the numbers of people who were excluded, not because they had flat feet or a heart murmur or some kind of medical condition, but for a mental illness, varied wildly from state to state or from induction uh, station to induction station. Some places it would be 40 percent. Some places it would be 10 percent. Um, and it also varied with the population. So, in induction stations that were in in areas that the population was predominantly African American, um, the rates were exorbitantly high, like sixty, seventy percent. Whereas in you know more predominantly uh, Caucasian, they were you know ten, fifteen, twenty percent. Mm-hmm. So. The military correctly inferred that there must be something wrong here. There was no systematization, and they charged you know, Will Menninger, uh, the psychiatrist I mentioned before, with developing a statistical process to define cases more uh, uh, reliably. Um, and the other place that this uh, sort of pressure came from was from uh, insurance companies and the government. You know, If, if we're going to be sort of supporting or paying for uh, uh, the care and the diagnosis, we need to know that. The person has, what they're being said to be had. Um, and there was a number, another area was studies that came about. There was a study that was done in the United States and in London where they, uh, they looked at the diagnoses coming into major teaching hospitals, and they found that people who had the same symptoms were diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder in London, and they were diagnosed with schizophrenia in New York. Um, and then finally, this classic experiment was conducted um the by uh, this uh, psychologist Rosenhan, where he he um the experiment was that he took normal individual you know college and graduate students and he gave them a script of describing depression he was a troublemaker <laughs> he was he was he was a a a little bit mischievous, but in a you know scientifically purposeful way. but he gave them a script to either describe symptoms of depression or schizophrenia, anxiety, and go into emergency rooms and see if they got admitted. And they got admitted. Then when they got to the floor, uh, they were told to just throw the script away and act completely normal. And despite that, they continued to receive these diagnoses. They continued to receive treatment. And they were kept in the hospital for some sustained period of time before they were discharged with recommendations for follow-up treatment. So all these things together uh, signaled to the um, American Psychiatric Association, that there was trouble, and and they had a problem. And they needed to do something to really enhance the credibility of their diagnoses. And so they took what was then the prevailing instrument, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, a term that was derived really from the military and government census. It was nothing terribly medically uh, or scientifically uh, relevant. And they said, this needs to have a wholesale reform, revision. And they charged, again, one of the other sort of seminal figures in in the history of psychiatry, psychiatrist uh, from Columbia University, Robert Spitzer, with the responsibility to do that. Now, Spitzer had um, shown his qualifications uh, for taking on this Enormous task. I mean, this this task was, uh, and I don't want to overstate this, but it's sort of akin to Eisenhower being made the commander of Allied forces in World War II. Um, you know, Spitzer was given this you know, weighty responsibility, which was really charged with saving the profession, because the profession was really on the ropes then. And what I mean, apart from his being a smart guy with a lot of academic credentials, what really sort of distinguished him and made the uh, leaders of the APA feel he was the, the person for the job was that immediately prior to that, he had presided over and successfully resolved one of the most ignominious chapters in psychiatry, and particularly American psychiatry, which was to uh, label homosexuality as a mental disorder. And uh, this, was, this was part of the diagnostic nomenclature.
0: He figured out a really ingenious way that made a lot of parties who were inimicably opposed to one another come together. I thought that was a brilliant and brilliantly written too.
1: And he was open-minded. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the thing about Spitzer, he was a pure empiricist. You know, he was basically, he wasn't prejudiced by theories, attitudes, beliefs, uh, or even if he did hold those. And he was trained and a certified psychoanalyst. Um but he said, you know, let's see what the data there is, uh, and if we can't find data, let's do as best we can to uh, uh, to determine the validity of these assumptions. So, the homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. But in the 60s, where there was a lot of really challenging of um, you know the sort of uh, social you know mores and beliefs um, to try and really uh, expand tolerance and understanding within society, um, the gay community also began to assert its, its uh, influence and in doing so challenged the issue of the diagnosis. And at the time, you had to be completely in the closet if you were a psychiatrist, because how could you be a psychiatrist if you suffer from mental disorder yourself, if you were gay? So there was this famous meeting that Spitzer went to That was at the American Psychiatric Association in the 1970s, where it was a closed private meeting. Spitzer was brought in by uh, a gay psychiatrist who felt that he could help to uh, mediate uh, a reconsideration of this. And when he showed up, the other attendees were aghast because they thought they had been outed, and Spitzer had to win their their confidence. And among them were many of the leaders of American psychiatry. Um, So basically, Spitzer organized a process to mobilize or to to, uh, gather all of the extant evidence which bore on this issue, bring it to a committee that was uh, uh, the task force that was uh, assigned for uh, revising the DSM. And basically, after a review and a series of discussions, determined that this was really unjustly uh, included and without any kind of scientific basis. Now, mental, illnesses, mental illness has been used for ulterior purposes in history, um, political, moral, social. Uh, in Russia during the communist uh, uh, regime, um, there was a diagnosis of sluggish schizophrenia, which was used, and the, the, the symptoms of this were basically symptoms opposing the uh, communist regime. um and in the case of homosexuality, this was really reflecting the um, moral beliefs or prejudices of the time. And so psychiatry's diagnoses were used as an instrument of that. And Spitzer was able, as you say, to you know adroitly uh, orchestrate a process to have it removed, um, which uh, impressed the leaders of the APA that then sort of installed him as this um, as the head of the task force for this uh, um, seminal Third revision of the DSM.
0: The DSM three was a a revolution, and I think marked the triumph of of science in in the world of psychiatry.
1: Well, there's he did he did. um, I mean, the thing that he did, which was uh, really um, fundamentally different than all of his predecessors, was that he said everything's on the table. We're looking at every diagnosis that's in the DSM and anything that would be proposed as a new addition solely on the empirical data. And uh, he recruited into the task force not people who had were part of factions of certain ideological groups, analysts or the multiple kind of uh, Neo-Freudian groups that had emerged, Kleinians and um, Sullivanians and <laughs> you know, there was, uh, it was like Christianity.
0: You it's know, like, oh it, yeah, religious schisms. <laughs> it, it
1: had differentiated into, you know, multiple sort of uh, versions of psychanalytic theory, cohesion theory. Uh, and so he brought in people who were largely part of this kind of new breed of um, psychiatrists with an orientation towards the scientific process and empirically validated practices. And they basically sort of reviewed everything and produced not just a reconstituted uh, system of diagnoses, but also a method for defining disorders, which meant, and you know its critics referred to it as kind of the Chinese menu's approach to diagnosis, You know, one from column A and two from column B, because he had very systematic descriptions of all the symptoms. He harkened back to Kreplin, and you couldn't have a diagnosis unless you met, the, unless you met these criteria. And since these diagnoses were important, not just for giving a diagnosis, determining treatment, but also for getting payment from third-party payers, they had a lot of influence. Now, apart from the methodology and the organization, there's two other really seminal uh, incidents that occurred in this context. One we were talking about before, which was the elimination of homosexuality as a disorder. Um, But the second was the introduction of PTSD. Mm -hmm. That's the,
0: the lessons of Vietnam.
1: Exactly. So and, and this, this, this is a, uh, an amazingly revealing sort of subplot within the history of psychiatry that uh, I, I find fascinating, um, which is that PTSD, what we now know as PTSD, that is when an individual sustains some terribly stressful experience that they subsequently have various types of mental distress and behavioral symptoms from, Um, This has been a phenomenon that's existed throughout human history because people have always been in situations where they could be in an earthquake, a fire, uh, beaten up, or war, and more in war than any other thing because that's about the most stressful kind of experience you can go through. Yet, the military was totally
0: blind or ignored this. Or suppressed it, and that's what they did in Britain. They said, you can't say that. You can't. There, there's no shell shock. Don't be saying those
1: words. That's right. Or if somebody did exhibit these signs, they often, you know, interpreted it as cowardice, mm-hmm. and they were court-martialed and 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 sometimes executed. Um, the first uh, description of what we now know as PTSD occurred in the Civil War, which was called soldiers' heart, but there was no sort of medical follow-up to that. But then in World War One, with the Great War, with the mechanized warfare the numbers were staggering of people that had shell shock or battle fatigue. Um, but even then, the military was very resistant to the idea. Uh, however, they did need to enlist psychiatrists and psychologists to attempt to manage the conditions. But then it wasn't really till World War II till this the military reluctantly began to accept and agree that they needed to do something. So at the beginning of the war, there was hardly any neuropsychiatrists that were in, that's what they called them in the military. But by the end of the war, there was, Will Menninger had become a four-star general, and there was a whole vision of psychiatrists treating individuals. And, and 20% of the casualties or more that were occurring were psychological casualties. So there was a recognition, there was an attempt to try and manage it. But then after the war, it was kind of, pushed aside Um, it wasn't even in the DSM which was the DSM-1 then there was no effort on the military or medical researchers to pursue this what is PTSD what happens when somebody is in this kind of somebody who is ostensibly normal and they're in this combat situation and all of a sudden they're unable to function and this is an enduring phenomenon it's not like they snap out of it in a minute Right. There was no follow-up. And it took till Vietnam, till this finally was taken seriously.
0: Now, you talk about uh, the recent, relatively recent release of the DSM-5 as the triumph of pr- pluralism. And I'd like you to explain what you mean by that.
1: The DSM in its 60-plus um, year history has undergone five revisions and the revisions are really geared towards trying to revise as needed the diagnoses based on the emergent information scientific, through scientific research through clinical practice that occurs in the intervals between revisions. And when um, DSM-5 was authorized, it was done with sort of great uh, expectations because it was authorized sort of initially in around 2005, and the 1990s. So, so this was this was the first revision. The DSM-4 had been revised in 1990. So, this was going to be the first revision in 15 or 20 years. Since then, in the momentum of the scientific research that had been generated by psychopharmacology, neuroimaging, genetics, uh, the emergence of modern neuroscience as a discipline was really going to be kind of full force and brought to bear on how we thought about mental illnesses and how we could diagnose them. And the 1990s had been declared uh, the decade of the brain, and the Congress had increased the budget uh, of the NIH to focus on brain research. So when DSM five was announced to be you know to begin, it was done with sort of great expectations. You know, we're going to have marked you know, revisions in the diagnoses, we're going to have diagnostic tests for the first time, you know, blood test or uh, an x-ray type procedure or an ekg for the brain and we're going to really be able to redefine the disorders in a more valid and precise way but as the task force got into the process and reviewed you know the reams of articles from the scientific literature it turned out that there wasn't that much that really allowed for substantive change and what sort of evolved was that? There were going to be some modifications, but there were going to be basically refinements of the previous DSM and the diagnoses that existed in that. And on one hand, you had the anti-psychiatry detractors. You know, basically they're uh,
0: still with us. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: It is. You know, this is exactly the how how you know old prejudices and uh, and biases die hard and and what's what's also unique uh, Rick is have you ever heard of any medical discipline that has an anti movement besides psychiatry
0: no and and you give an example at the beginning of your book that i think is is telling and and tragic i mean i can't imagine somebody saying well you have a heart murmur but i i don't really believe in heart murmurs and treating heart murmurs i think they're due to you know somebody's bad attitude
1: that's right that's right the 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 naysayers persist, and it's true that, and, and that was uh, the main reason uh, with the book that I wanted to tell the complete story of psychiatry, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, because you know it did do some bad stuff, but that was then and now is now, and for people to deny themselves of getting treatment for a condition that they may suffer from is completely unwarranted. Uh, and if it's prejudice and stigma and old beliefs that are holding
0: them back, that's 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 really just not right. I've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman. His new book is "Shrinks: The Untold Story of Psychiatry." He's told it so well. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lieberman.
1: My pleasure, Rick. Anytime. <music>